I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. As always, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Now, as we pick up in the book of Judges, we start with words that are starting to become a little bit too familiar, aren't they? Those words are, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Seems like it's happened a lot, hasn't it? Well, you see, that's what's really brought about all the hardship and oppression that God's people have been dealing with in the book of Judges. And of course, that's also brought about the need for judges to deliver them. In the pattern of judges, it appears the people of Israel simply won't learn their lesson. A generation comes and goes. The sins of the fathers become the sins of the sons. Those who do not learn from their history are doomed to repeat it. There's a famous Saturday Night Live skit featuring Bob Newhart in the role of a therapist seeing a patient. And this patient walks in and she complains of an irrational fear of being buried alive in a box. The fear is so strong for this woman that she can't function in her everyday life. She's not able to go on elevators. She's not able to drive through tunnels. It's interrupting everything. So the therapist's solution as he sits with this woman is he simply yells at her over and over again, stop it. Just stop it over and over again. No one's tried to bury you in a box before. You are not going to be buried in a box at any point. There's no reason to think that this could possibly happen to you, so just stop being scared of it. Stop letting this completely irrational fear run your life. But here's the thing. We all know that you can't just simply yell, stop it, at something like that. And at this point in the book of Judges, we might be at the point where we want to grab the Israelites by the collar and take the role of that therapist and just yell, stop it. Just stop with the rebellion. Just stop with the idolatry. Just stop with the corruption. You see that this is destroying you. Just stop it. But again, it's not that simple. Sin is far deeper and far more insidious than that, isn't it? I mean, this isn't just some bad habit the Israelites have formed. It's a part of their nature. It's part of who they are. Sin is a part of our nature as human beings. It extends to all of us. And that even includes the judges themselves. Now, today we'll start to see more and more that the judges don't always come out of their stories smelling like roses because they're guilty of their own sin, too. And while that might sound discouraging, rightfully so, well, it's also not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world because, in a sense, Human leaders aren't meant to be the true heroes anyway. Imperfect leaders are not our true deliverers when it comes down to it. And they certainly aren't our true sources of hope. So open up to Judges chapter 6, verse 1. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 140. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you when you leave today. But before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word that we have the privilege of opening. I pray that we would trust in the power of your word, that we would come to your word knowing that it is not just some religious text. It's not just some book of fairy tales. It's not just some important documents from the past. But this is really, truly your word. It's living. It's breathing. It's active. 
it pierces hearts, it cuts through bones and marrow, it convicts us and it challenges us and encourages us, and at times it even warns us. So, Father, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, we would let it do the work that you would have it do. Thank you for everything you tell us about yourself in your word, that you are not content to be distant and removed and unknowable, but that you want people like us to know you. And thank you that as we read your word, we read about your son who came and died for us, which is what brings us all together in this building on this morning in the first place. So, Father, thank you for this time we have. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your church. And thank you for your son. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. All right, Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There are those words again. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So as we pick up in the story, the Israelites are once again facing great oppression, great hardship, this time at the hands of Midian. Now, there had been 40 years of peace after Deborah and Barak. We read about them last week. But this oppression has been going on for the last seven years. And unfortunately, there doesn't appear to be an end in sight. The main form of this oppression is economic. Midian is raising Israel, raiding Israel of their livestock and their crops. They've had to resort to hiding in caves just to stay alive. That's how bad things have gotten. And of course, with our pattern, the book of Judges, any guesses on what comes next? Well, sure enough, exactly what you'd expect. The people cry out to God. Now, interestingly, in these verses, starting in verse 7 and the verses following, we see a small shift in that pattern that we've grown so used to in the book of Judges. The shift is that God does not help them right away. Instead, he sends a prophet to rebuke them. Now, God knows true sorrow and true repentance when he sees it. And apparently, this just simply isn't true repentance. And as harsh as it sounds, God decides that it is in their best interest, even if they can't see it, to let them suffer just a little bit longer. You kind of get the sense that Israel is like that husband who goes and buys flowers for his angry wife, naively assuming that she will just automatically forget everything that caused the fight in the first place, right? But that's not how it works. But that being said, God is still gracious. God is still loving. God is still faithful to his people, even when they're not faithful to him. So in the end, his mercy wins out. He gets to work appointing a judge to deliver them. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, 
while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Well, we find today's judge, Gideon, beating out wheat in a wine press. Now that shows just how desperate the Israelites actually are. Things are so bad that they are beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the raiding Midianites. They have to do their work in a place that no one would expect because of the oppression that they're facing. And what's ironic is that the messenger of God calls Gideon this mighty man of valor. But why would he call him that? I mean, Gideon hasn't done anything of significance yet. He's just beating out wheat. Nothing special there. Well, it appears that we're getting some foreshadowing of Gideon's future. That one day he will be a mighty man of valor. That's what God has called him to do. But then as Gideon hears this message, his initial response is hesitant. He sounds a lot like Barak did last week after his charge from God delivered by Deborah. Remember Barak? Barak doubted. Barak wavered. Gideon does the same thing. And ultimately, Gideon gets to the point where he even asks a pointed question about suffering. God, if you're really with us, then why has all this stuff happened to us? If you really still care about us, why are the Midianites making life so hard? If you haven't abandoned us, then where have you been all this time while we've been suffering? Have you ever asked that question? I'm sure a lot of us have asked that question. Where is God? Has God abandoned me? Does God really still care about me? Because it sure doesn't feel like God still cares about me. It's not hard to follow Gideon's logic, is it? Especially if he's been in the same boat. Gideon's logic appears to be, well, there's nothing to suggest that God is with us right now based on how terrible things are. So if I'm really going to believe that God still cares about us, if I'm really going to believe that you are a messenger from God... Give me some proof. Give me a sign. Prove it. That's exactly what God does. Now, before you totally dismiss Gideon as a man of little faith and little confidence in God, before you write him off, think back to another man, a man named Moses, who was also called by God. When Moses was called by God, he too had doubts and he too had hesitance and he too had questions. But God, I'm not good with words. But God, what if they don't believe me when I talk to them? But God, why can't you just pick somebody else to do this? 
But here's the thing about God. The God who called Moses and the God who called Gideon and the God who calls you and me today is patient. And he is gracious. And in this particular scenario, God gives Gideon the sign he needs to believe and to trust. So, we have our man. We have Gideon appointed. He's been called by God. He has accepted the calling. Now's the time to get some action, right? I mean, let's go get some iron chariots and some swords and some tent pegs and let's see some cool stuff happen, right? Well, not quite yet. Because before Gideon faces these foreign oppressors, the Midianites, God gives him some work to do in-house. Specifically, his job is to tear down the idols that the Israelites are worshiping in his town. Sounds easy enough, right? I mean, knock over some statues, knock over a piece of wood. Anybody can do that. Well, here's the problem. Gideon's own father, Joash, is one of those idol worshipers, along with the rest of the town. Now, Gideon was scared, of course, but in the end, he obeys. He tears down the idols under the cover of night, like God told him to. When the people wake up the next day, they're so outraged by this that they even suggest killing Gideon. But then of all people, Gideon's father, Joash, comes to the rescue. The guy who just the day before was worshiping idols dispenses a solid dose of sound doctrine. When it comes to idols, look at chapter six, starting in verse 30. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So, Joash seems to get it. He seems to, in this moment, understand that a God who can be knocked down, a God that can be broken into pieces, a God that can be vandalized under the cover of night, That's not really a God. That God's not living. That God's not active. That God's not powerful. There's only one God who is living and active and powerful, and it's not Baal. It's the God who has called Gideon. Well, by obeying God and destroying these idols, Gideon appears to spark an awakening. The Israelites abandon the idols. They rally around Gideon. Gideon is clothed with the Spirit of God. Now the battle could start, right? I mean, this is certainly a high point. Well, again, we're not quite ready for action yet. Gideon's not quite ready for action yet. Because after this amazing high point of tearing down the idols and the people rallying around him, Gideon once again doubts. Gideon once again wavers. He asked for a second and then a third sign from God. And of course, God is still patient with Gideon. God gives him the signs he needs. You can almost picture God like that parent who's teaching their kid how to swim, standing at the side of the pool. 
God's standing there telling Gideon over and over again, hey, come on, Gideon, jump in. You can trust me. I promise you've got your floaties on. We're in the shallow end. You're going to be okay. You will be all right. Just trust me. Just jump. Just obey the call that I've given you. And in spite of Gideon's best efforts, in spite of his doubts, in spite of his wavering, he ultimately does obey. Now, so far in the story, Gideon seems to be a somewhat likable judge, doesn't he? I mean, he's the kind of judge that we can relate to. He's the kind of judge that we can sympathize with. I mean, like us, Gideon has moments of courage, but he also has moments of fear. Gideon has moments of boldness, but he's certainly not perfect either. Gideon is a man who openly and honestly wrestles with his trust in God, who speaks with God about his doubts. As you read that, you can't help but pull for a humble judge like Gideon, right? He's a good character so far. Well, now it should be finally time to fight, right? Well, not yet. Yet again, we see a delay. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then twenty two thousand of the people returned and ten thousand remained. There's one more thing God needs to do before the battle begins, and that's that God needs to weed out some of Gideon's 32,000 fighters. Now, that might seem strange at first, might seem opposed to conventional military wisdom, but God doesn't want there to be any confusion about the who, who the hero of the story really is. First, he whittles it down to 10,000 men, then he gets it down to 300 men. 300 men, that's it, against 135,000, roughly, Midianites. For Gideon to go in a battle with a number like that, Gideon is digging his own grave. Gideon can't possibly win. But then again, that's the whole idea. The whole point of the story is not that Gideon would win. It's not that 300 men would win. It's not that Israel would win and deliver themselves. The whole point of the story is that God wins. The Israelites do something they could not do on their own because God himself is with them. Now, of course, Gideon doubts again. God gives him a sign again. Gideon is reassured and worships again. And he finally leads the army into battle. Now, by the time the battle is done... 120,000 of the 135,000 Midianites fall. It is a blowout. The oppressors are absolutely routed by God. They're certainly not routed by Gideon. Now, based on the stories that we've read so far in the book of Judges, this seems like a good point for the story to end, right? Gideon finally obeyed God's call. God came through. The Midianites are no longer a threat. Everybody can live happily ever after, right? Forty years of peace. Well, 
the story doesn't end. The story keeps going. But unfortunately, from here on out, we seem to see a very different Gideon. And the changes that we see in Gideon aren't very good. From here on out, we see things in Gideon that make us wish the story had ended in chapter 7. The Israelites have been delivered. Gideon has done his job. He's obeyed his calling. But then Gideon decides that he's not done yet. Gideon seeks out the surviving kings of the Midianites, men by the name of Zeba and Zalmanah. We later learn that Gideon seeks them out, not out of a calling from God or a message from God, but out of a personal desire for vengeance. It gets so bad that when some of Gideon's fellow Israelites refuse to help him along the way, he resorts to power threats against them, threatens to hurt them, even kill them. Now, Gideon does eventually get his vengeance by killing those two Midianite kings. He also gets vengeance against those Israelites who refuse to help. Not positive changes at the end of chapter 7 for Gideon. The changes aren't hard to see. At no point in this quest for the Midianite kings, at no point does he consult with God. At this point in the story, Gideon seems to be so consumed with the thought of vengeance that he even gets rid of some of his own countrymen. Who got in the way. Fellow Israelites. Some of God's people. His brothers and sisters. Under God's rule. Gideon kills them. Unfortunately Gideon no longer sounds like that humble. Likeable. Relatable judge that we read about earlier. As the story goes on. He becomes more like an arrogant. Hardened. And you might even say wicked king. Now, you might say, hold on for just a minute. I mean, how can we call Gideon a wicked king? I mean, if you know the story well, in chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, Gideon explicitly turns down the offer to become king. The Israelites come to him. They try to give him the title of king, and Gideon rejects it. Well, it's true that Gideon turns down the title. Give credit where credit is due. But functionally, he's already acting like a king anyway. Gideon doesn't need the title by the time they ask him to be king. When Gideon killed those two Midianite kings, initially he didn't want to do it himself. He tried to get his son Jether to do it. Now in the ancient Near East, it was very common that when someone had their son kill their enemies for them, that was a sign of succession. It appears that Gideon was interested in setting up a dynasty. By letting Jether kill his enemies. Sounds pretty king-like. On top of that, later in his life, Gideon will acquire a concubine. Now, a concubine, lots of people had concubines back then. It was basically a second wife. And there were people who had concubines that weren't kings. But every king had a concubine. That's just a kingly thing to do. And on top of that, when this concubine bears Gideon a son... He names this son Abimelech. And in Hebrew, Abimelech means my father is king. That was pretty obvious. You see, at the end of his time, Gideon refuses to call himself a king. But Gideon had no problem living like a king. 
He's a lot like Vladimir Putin in Russia. Vladimir Putin would never actually call himself a dictator. Are you crazy? He wouldn't do that. But anyone with eyes can see that that's exactly what he is. The sad truth is that Gideon, like so many mighty men of valor, Gideon doesn't finish well. Gideon appears to let his own arrogance, his own ambition, his own bloodlust get the best of him. But that's not all. While Gideon didn't want to be called king, he had no problem taking some of the Israelites' gold for himself. Another kingly-sounding thing. And what does Gideon do with that gold? Well, Gideon sets up an idol. The guy who burst onto the scene by destroying the idols in his hometown, he sets up the next one that they'll worship. Look at chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Depressing verses about Gideon. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the day of Gideon. Jump forward to verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Well, unsurprisingly, as soon as Gideon dies, chaos reigns. Before Gideon's body is even cold, Israel has already completely abandoned God once again. And the pattern of judges, the beat of the book, just keeps going on over and over and over. So, what can we learn from a judge like Gideon? I mean, he's by far the most contradictory judge that we've read about in the book. Well, a few lessons. Number one. As we read the story of Gideon, we learn a little bit about God's patience, don't we? God repeatedly worked through a man who wasn't always a shining example of trust. He wasn't always a beacon of faith, was he? And yet God held his hand and walked with him through those times of doubt and through those times of fear. Maybe the encouraging lesson there is that Seasons of wrestling with our faith and seasons of doubt, that doesn't mean that God can't use you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have something in store for you. God can still use you for your good and for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Even if you wrestle with your faith. Even if you have difficult questions. Another lesson that we learn from Gideon is that starting well doesn't always mean we finish well, does it? Now, this can be true of all of God's people, but particularly those in leadership positions. Positions of authority, positions of influence can quickly cater to our innate sinfulness, especially when we decide to set the agenda rather than God. Kind of like how Gideon set the agenda to hunt down those Midianite kings without consulting God in it. We should take Paul's words very seriously from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. I pray that you start well. 
But I also pray that we would finish well. And finally, one more lesson. Our sin can have a shocking ripple effect on the people and the things around us. Immediately following his death, Abimelech, remember Abimelech, Gideon's son by the concubine, the son whose name means my father is king, while Abimelech becomes Israel's wicked ruler. And Abimelech's life is marked by a hunger for power, a willingness to murder whoever stands in his way in order to get that power, And Abimelech ultimately starts a civil war amongst God's people. It's clear that Gideon's sin came back to bite God's people years after he died. And in the same way, those around us and even those after us often have to deal with the practical results of our decisions, of our sin. And that should cause a healthy level of fear for us. You see, the judges appear to be getting worse and worse. Things definitely don't get any better with the major judges following Gideon. And Gideon's sad story is a stark reminder that while God can use sinful humans in astounding ways, that's certainly true. They are still very much sinful humans. That's why our trust isn't in sinful humans. Our trust isn't in pastors or politicians or military leaders, or anybody else who wrestles with sin. Ultimately, our hope is in Jesus, the only one who is sinless. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's the one who always trusted in God and never wavered. He's the one who didn't come to be served like a king, but came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who didn't just finish well, but finished perfectly, even if that meant going to a cross. He's the one that we can call our victorious, mighty man of valor, not because of how many enemies he killed, but by how many enemies he died for. We don't trust in pastors or politicians or spouses or any other sinful human being. We trust in Jesus as our deliverer. All those other people... They will fail one way or another, big or small, public or private. Sinful people will let you down if you put your hope in them. But Jesus will not let you down. He has not let you down. He's not like Gideon because he finished well dying on the cross for you. I pray that as we leave here this morning, we would place our trust in him, the one true mighty man of valor who died on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we read your word, that we would heed the warnings that you give us. I pray that we would learn from the lives of others. I pray that we would learn from our own mistakes. And I pray that ultimately we would trust in your grace. If we try to somehow obey enough or do enough or attend church enough or make fewer mistakes or adjust our habits or or whatever, all that stuff can be good. All that stuff can be helpful, but... 
That's not the stuff that saves us. Ultimately, it is your mercy and your patience and your grace that saves us. You show your mercy, you show your patience to Gideon, you show your patience to the Israelites. I pray that we would have clearer eyes to see just how patient you have been with us as well. And ultimately, the greatest act of mercy, the greatest act of patience, the greatest act of grace that you would have for sinful humans is not sending somebody like Gideon to defeat enemies, but it's sending your son to give himself up on the cross. Father, I pray that we would leave here this morning knowing that we have hope, knowing that we have victory, knowing that we have purpose, and knowing that we will have eternal joy, not because of any human leader, but because your son died for us. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. I pray that all of us would finish well in whatever callings that it is that you've placed in our lives. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.